the workplace, people have to be very, very careful what they say and what they do. And even a gesture uh, or, or an eye contact uh, or, or a laugh or a, that's out of place. It can be very dangerous because certainly in the public service and universities now, the whole milieu is, is woke. It's all about political correctness. And, and as you say, a Stasi-like approach where anybody who fails to conform is ostracised, can actually not be promoted, can, can lose a job. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and oh, I forgot my name for a second there, Ricky. It happens, it happens. It happens, and with me, Will, <laughs> with me, as always, is Ricky Allpike. How you doing, Ricky? I'm good. Uh we're putting vibes out there into the universe and they're, they're, they're hitting people right in the ear holes and they're loving what we're doing and they're coming on our show. I know. It's, 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 it's truly shocking. Uh, we've got another fantastic guest for you today, uh, Kevin Donnelly. Um, and, and look, you know, all, all I can say to the, to the regular listener is just keep coming with us on this ride and uh, we haven't abandoned you uh, if you loved what we were doing before we hope we, we're going to get uh our regular shows but it's just that there's not enough time yeah <laughs> is there ricky no there's not and we've just uh sort of yeah fallen into uh an interesting position where all these people they're they're saying yes so yes we're gonna we're gonna keep rolling until they start saying no yes that's right and 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 yeah but anyway do come with us uh because we're learning a lot and um and, and and it's an absolute pleasure so with that in mind uh on with the show dr kevin donnelly am is an australian educator author and commentator he's senior fellow at the australian catholic university pm's glynn institute a fearless cultural warrior who hails from Broadmeadows and has penned articles for the australian the daily telegraph the sydney morning herald and quadrant he's written a number of books including the culture of freedom dumbing down how political correctness is destroying education and your child's future how political correctness is destroying australia a politically correct dictionary and guide, and most recently, cancel culture and the left's long march. Welcome to the new flesh, Kevin. My pleasure. Great to be involved. So, Kevin, your most recent book is the scariest book not written by Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I, I, I read this book and uh, it was um, sobering and uh, frightening at times. Uh, it's a series of essays on the topic of, of cancel culture. And you've gotten some very heavy hitters involved, Peter Credlin, Jennifer Oriel, uh, Anthony Dillon, Tony Abbott. Uh, would you mind telling us perhaps the origin and origin story of the book and perhaps and what inspired you to put it together? Yeah, I mean, many years ago, I, I was lucky enough to go to a, a conference in America, in Atlanta, Georgia, a think tank conference. And there would have been over, you know, two or 300 people there and over 50 or 60 American mainly think tanks and uh, you know institutes, conservative, uh, centre right, and, uh, and and that was a great opportunity to you know learn about what was happening in America back then. I discovered a a, a little dictionary called uh, the official politically correct dictionary and guide, uh, which really got my interest because this was before political correctness had hit Australia before really we, we had talked about it or known about it. What's the time frame, Kevin, roughly, the time frame? Yeah, this is about 30 years ago okay. uh, when I was in America. 
And it was very humorous. I mean, it talked about, you know, you can't say short people. They have to be, you know, vertically challenged. Uh, you, you can't say uh, a manhole structure. Had to be a personnel access structure. And so in a way it was serious but also quite humorous. But when I got back to Australia, I started to realise that what was happening in America was really infecting the way we in Australia read the media, uh, the way journalists started to report issues, what was happening in university and schools, especially in faculties like uh, literature or English or history or politics. So I began to realise that political correctness and people now kind of talk about being woke, that's a more recent sort of outcome, but I started to realise political correctness was a significant issue in terms of what I call the cultural left, trying to indoctrinate people with what George Orwell, the author of uh, 1984, talked about in terms of Big Brother using language to control how people think. And Orwell wrote, language, if you can control the language, you can control how people conceptualise and think. And so I started to really do the research about where this all came from in terms of the cultural left, part of the long march through the institutions to try and work out where it came from, why it was so intense and what we needed to do to address it and to make sure that we didn't become indoctrinated, that in fact we still had, you know, free, free and open discussion uh, free speech. So, yeah, it goes back to that trip to America over 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, what's your favourite essays, personally, from the book? Yeah, Gary Marks has written a very good one, Chapter 1, I think it is, which really goes back through the history of what we now call being woke, originally what was known as political correctness, but it goes back many, many years to Many people uh, talk about the Frankfurt School in Germany that began during the 1920s, 1930s, where a group of Marxist academics realised that the revolution was never going to occur in the West. I mean, obviously, Russia had a revolution, uh, but it was never going to happen in the West. And they realised that instead of arguing from an economic point of view, about the modes and means of production, about capitalism, about ownership. What they needed to focus on was what is known as cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism, which is where we get the idea of the culture wars. And so what the Frankfurt School really began, quite revolutionary, was to argue that if the left was ever going to control Western cultures, Western society, whether it's America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, if the left was ever going to win, they had to take the long march through the institutions and you get involved in the culture wars. And whether that's, uh, you know, what is now wokeness in terms of uh, identity politics or the, you know, the gen gender ideology, that's where it's all originated from. It was kicked along in the late 60s by a German radical uh, <clears throat> during the Cultural Revolution of the late 1960s in Europe. Uh, Rudy Ducek 
who argued that, again, when the university students in Paris and in Berlin were taken to the streets, it was quite a heady time. He argued that the left had to win this culture war. Today, 2022, how bad is the situation and what, and where are the attack fronts? Don't, don't sugarcoat it for us. For those people who've read 1984, George Orwell makes the point that if you can control language, you can control how people think and conceptualise. And the example is in, in the novel, Big Brother, who's a totalitarian dictator, Big Brother and the party say war is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Now, they're totally contradictory and they don't make any sense. But if you repeat, and I think it was uh, Stalin who said, if you can repeat a lie often enough, then people start to believe it. And so when you look at totalitarian regimes of the left or the right, one way that they indoctrinate people is through language. And as an English teacher, that really troubled me because when I was teaching, uh, certainly when I went back to university to do uh, postgraduate work, I began to understand that the school curriculum and also the university curriculum had been infiltrated by the left. And so in universities now, there are trigger warnings for example, uh, in, in, in English literature, if you read something like uh, Moby Dick, uh, you know, there's a trigger warning because uh, they kill whales. Uh, if you look to kill a mockingbird, that book has been banned in some libraries, a classic novel, because it was written by a white woman and that's cultural appropriation. I mean, there are many, many examples the way language and the way literature is now being controlled to really indoctrinate people with this cultural left view of the world. I mean, other examples, even in primary school, something like uh, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, for example, is a better example. In Sleeping Beauty, the prince kisses the sleeping princess. The argument now is you shouldn't read that to children because the princess never gave any consent to being kissed, which is kind of wacko. I think she probably preferred to be alive and to wake up, but and she was in love with the prince. But it got to the stage where, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine, you can't read that to your children because it reinforces capitalist hierarchy where you've got the, the fat controller, the mainline trains, the, the you know, the, the, the right down to the buses who are the, like the working class. Uh, things like the Little Black Sambo. There are lots of examples uh, in English, but also in history. You know, I taught history for many years and I reviewed the national curriculum in Australia in 2014. And the latest iteration of the national curriculum says that the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788 was genocide and invasion, that Aboriginal people lived in a utopia where we're like the noble savage that goes back to Rousseau, the idea of the noble savage. And, and in the curriculum now, they're teaching primary and secondary school students that there is nothing beneficial or worthwhile about British settlement, about the First Fleet. It's an invasion. It's genocide. It's all, all about the destruction of Indigenous culture. What they ignore is that one of the reasons we're a Western liberal democracy and we have the freedom that we do 
is because along with the First Fleet came a copy of the King James Bible and Blackstone's Laws of England. So we inherited uh, a British parliamentary system that evolved, uh, and we also inherited Christianity, which has a very strong argument that as we're all made in God's image, you should have equality, social justice, equity. So in the history curriculum, as I say, it's very biased and one-sided. Perhaps sticking with education for a little bit as we're on that on this topic, uh, something you mentioned there about trigger warnings, so the, the, the example of Moby Dick. What, what do you think a trigger warning does uh, does to that novel? Like, is the idea that if, if we put enough trigger warnings on things that, that, that we, we just won't read them any, anymore or, or, or young people's students won't, won't want to engage in it? Is that, is that the main tactic here? It, it's complicated by, and I haven't spoken about it, but the rise of postmodernism and deconstructionism. And if you go back to the late 60s and early 70s in Europe, authors like Foucault, everything is reduced to power relationships. And if you look at the sociology of education, MFD Young in England, but Bowles and Gintis in America as well, and Connell, W. Uh, Connell, William Connell in Australia, the argument became that everything in, in Western society has to be analysed and critiqued and deconstructed in terms of gender, ethnicity, class, and so it's all about power relationships. So you don't read Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet for its moral or aesthetic value. You don't read it because it's a good story and it catches your attention. You read it to deconstruct it as being heteronormative because the relationship is between a boy and a girl. And that's binary, it's heteronormative, it's Eurocentric, patriarchal, and that's the way these people now talk. And there have been examples in London, for example, where a couple of schools, the, the schools decided not to take their students to see Romeo and Juliet, the play, because it was heteronormative from their point of view. And even recently... Uh, and, and I'm sort of moving on a bit here, but recently, if you look at the guidelines for kindergarten and preschool, they're arguing, in fact, that little five, eight-year-old kids should be taught there's nothing normal about being a boy or a girl, that that's binary, heteronormative, wrong. And so you must teach seven-year-old kids about the LGBTQI uh, agenda, about gender fluidity, and they can decide whatever they want to be. So it, it, it's a broad issue here that touches on not just education, the curriculum, but also how people read. You know, one person said to me a couple of weeks ago, well, we still study Shakespeare. We still do Jane Austen and, and uh, Chaucer or whatever it might be. Do, do we still do 1984? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, you it would be hard to find it. <laughs> You'd need a teacher who's brave enough to sort of work against the prevailing sort of current. But, I mean, I'm staggered. Every day I find out more examples. You know, I mentioned kindergarten kids. There was the example of Safe Schools, the program, Gender Fluidity Program, that was uh, written or co-authored by Ros Ward from La Trobe. She's a Marxist, lesbian, which is fine, but she argued it had nothing to do with stopping bullying. 
It was all about promoting a neo-Marxist view, liberating people, overthrowing capitalism, and this kind of utopian idea that if you get rid of gender binary, somehow people will reach the workers' paradise. But you must have had this experience, Kevin. You try and explain what's happening to someone and they hear these words, they hear neo-Marxism, they hear Long March, Foucault, any of that, and they, they kind of switch off or look at you like you're crazy. I've, I've had this experience personally. How, how do we bridge the gap for normal folks out there? How can we help them you know, sort of see that this is, this is real? And, and, uh, the, and what, what should they be looking out for in their, in their day-to-day lives? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a great question. I go to the Victoria Market in Melbourne, obviously, every week. And when I talk to these storeholders, and they're intelligent people. I mean, you know, I never made the mistake. I grew up in Broadmeadows, working class, and I'm a great believer in, you know, Australian citizens, your average citizen, being well-informed and critically aware. So when I talk to the store owners, they're shocked at the examples I give. Like if I say some one of the women there said to me, uh, you know, hello, Kevin, and I said, oh, good day, darling. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't call you darling. Uh, I don't want to oppress you because I'm a male and, and you're a woman. No, you're not a woman. You're a non-binary person. <laughs> she laughed. She laughed. You know, humour's a great way of doing it. Or a Wimixen, I think is another yeah. one. If you've seen this, have you ever seen this word, Wimixen? It's like women mm. with an X instead of a, an A at the end. I've, I've seen women with oh, Y-N. Okay. Mm. But, uh, I mean, one good way is humour. Uh, and uh, one of the books I did, the Politically Correct Dictionary and Guide, Johannes Leek did the cover and the cartoons. Uh, and so one way is humour. But you can simplify it. Uh, at the deli, I say, have you got any coon cheese? We can't sell coon cheese. They've changed the name. Yeah. I say, why did they change the name? They say, God, oh, it's bloody stupid. Of course they shouldn't change the name. Mm. So there are examples there you can use that bring it home to people in their everyday lives. You know, when you travel now on airlines like Qantas, they've been told they can't say mum and dad or, or you know, call people darling. Or it, It's kind of coming to the stage where it's no longer abstract and theoretical. It's actually hitting people in their daily lives. I've got a niece, seven-year-old son at a local primary school. He got into trouble in the playground a couple of weeks ago because he said, come on, come on, boys, to his mates. Mm. Yeah. And he was told he couldn't use that word, boys, because it was gender stereotyping. And the mum suddenly said, this is my son. And he came home confused because mm. <laughs> it was a normal family with a mum and a dad and boys and girls and brothers and sisters. And people hate me saying normal because that's imposing uh, patriarchal, Eurocentric, misogynist, uh, binary sort of description. But that's what most normal people know as families, mum and dad. Uh Another example, school, a school in Melbourne, primary school, they made all the boys stand up at assembly and actually apologised to the girls for being male. Now, that's what it's come to, Hmm. and that's appalling because I'd suggest the majority, the overwhelming majority of boys and men are not misogynist. They're not. Doesn't this create a situation where we're living in this sort of 
bifurcated world where where uh, pub certain public spaces or your work life is is sort of governed by a completely different language and this, this sort of stasi like code and then at home or when you're at the markets or when you're with your friends or whatever you speak you know just as the soviets did in their kitchen uh normally you know what i mean like like and, and, or you speak and, and you you can say oh mum's coming over later or you can just say you, you could have a, a what 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 looked like the, you know uh, the experience that we've understand it we've understood for so long. So, do you think that this just is going to create these sort of two worlds? To a degree, it is. But I mean, as we all know, in the workplace, people have to be very, very careful what they say and what they do, and even a gesture uh, or or an eye contact uh, or, or a laugh or a that's out of place. It can be very dangerous because. Certainly in the public service and universities now, the whole milieu is, is woke. It's all about political correctness. And, and as you say, a Stasi-like approach where anybody who fails to conform is ostracised, can actually not be promoted, can, can lose a job. As an academic, thankfully I'm at the Australian Catholic University where there's a degree of flexibility and tolerance but there would be some universities where I would never be able to get a position. I would never be able to publish or in peer-reviewed journals. And if I did go public, as I do in the media, write for the papers, I would be admonished and warned not to do it. So in the workplace, it's actually become quite Orwellian in the way people are being controlled. Even privately now, you know, if you're at the a barbecue with neighbours or friends, I've noticed you have to be very wary what you say because a joke, an aside, people suddenly look at you as though you're dangerous and you've offended them, you've offended their sensibilities and we're losing that, you know, I, I grew up in Broadmeadows, I said before, working class, Irish Catholic background, Without being too rude, we used to take the piss. People would laugh and joke and nobody gave a damn. You got on with it. I mean, all of my mates, one was Agathaclus Agaropolis from Greece, another was Heinz from Germany, another was Lee Tet from China. We were all Aussie kids. We didn't care where we came from. We'd never heard of identity politics or, or structural racism. We just got on with life and were very happy and we laughed and joked. Uh, but that now is very dangerous. And that's what worries me because there's kind of an oppressive atmosphere that, that is growing. And even, you know, the other examples in hospitals now, you can't say breast milk. You have to say chest milk. Uh, it's kind of weird that uh, babies are no longer born boy or girls. They're assigned a birth gender, mm. like assigned and so some parents are taking a couple of months to work out whether they want to have a boy or a girl or an LGBTQI plus child. Mm. You will assign it. Yeah. Even though 98, 99% of babies are XX or XY. I mean, biologically speaking, as, as uh, Camille Paglia argues, uh, the American feminist, radical feminist, biologically we're programmed to be girls and boys. Mm, for sure. Now, 
Kevin, I was watching one of your debates as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which was great, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the other panellists didn't share your views, shall we say. Uh, what struck me was the inability of this person to, to sort of keep their emotions in check. There was, you know, a lot of sighing while you we were speaking, dramatic gestures, placing hands over the face, uh, exasperated tirades. This seems to be a feature of a certain university-educated adherent. Um, now, I'm not singling this person out. Uh, it seems to be, you know, uh, this behaviour seems to be common in in someone who's, you know, used to having everything they ever say assented to, someone who has shielded themselves from debate and, and has prized emotion and outrage over argument. Um, have you noticed this phenomenon and... When did emotion take over as, as, as something university educated or think or a thinking person should reference over other faculties? Yeah, I mean, another great question. Uh, I think it was Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. And when I went to school, I did matriculation many years ago, but we did clear thinking in year 12. And even at university, when I did an undergraduate degree in English, the whole idea was to debate, discuss, argue. You could use rhetoric, you could be emotive, you could use logic, you could be rational. Uh, but the argument had to be weighed in terms of its credibility and its validity. So it didn't really matter who was doing the arguing, whether what colour, what race, what class. All that mattered was the quality of their argument. And, and, you know, it probably goes back to Plato and Aristotle, uh, you know, the old idea of the Greek philosophers and sophists that you argue and debate and discuss. And in that sense, you hopefully don't always reach the solution or the truth, but you approximate what is a better idea and what's closer to the truth. But now it's emotional. It's no longer I think, therefore I am. It's I feel it's right, so it must be right. And one of the reasons here, and I taught for 18 years in schools and the doctorate was in the school curriculum, one of the reasons is because if you go back to, and I'm a bit older than you two, but if you go back 40 or 50 years, education became very much taken over by a progressive kind of Rousseau, Rousseauian view of children would grow naturally to knowledge and understanding. And so it was all about child-centred learning, about process learning, about inquiry-based learning. And, and at the time, and this is an aside, we, we no longer taught phonics and phonemic awareness. It was whole language. We no longer did times tables and mental arithmetic. It was somehow grow into it naturally it would arise but we also put the child center and so the child was primary and secondary school taught to think that they were able and capable enough to think whatever they wanted and to say whatever they wanted and, and you know the current jargon teachers are now facilitators or guides by the side so you don't tell a child or a student they're right or wrong, you don't present them with the knowledge or the wisdom, they're knowledge navigators, they're digital natives, they can go online, they can do their own, you know, search, they can arrive at their own conclusions, even though they don't know anything, 
<laughs> sorry to say, even though they don't know anything, they're now being taught that their opinion is valid. Now, it's kind of weird because the changes happened so quickly over 30, 40 years that when I matriculated and went to university, the whole idea of an undergraduate degree was to graduate and then try and work out what you had to do next. So for me, it was a master's and a doctorate. And after you've done a PhD and done the original, original research, people start to listen and take you as having something worthwhile to say. But, I mean, I've been in seminars and, you know, Zoom meetings where a 12-, 14-year-old student will tell me they know more about education than I do, even though I taught for 18 years and I've written four or five books on education and reviewed the national curriculum and benchmark curriculum internationally. I mean, I could go on. But they somehow believe, and Jane Caro, you might know from Sydney, uh, the marketing guru who writes on education. I was on a panel with her. She actually started to lecture me about education and curriculum. And I looked at her and I said, Jane, you're a marketing woman. What do you know about education? And she basically said, I don't need to know. My, my sister's a teacher and, and I, know, I know what it's all about. <laughs> Some of my best friends are teachers. So, uh, but but we see the end stage of this to be because just to stick on this festival of dangerous ideas, uh, uh, which I, I encourage everyone to watch. It was absolutely fascinating. Mm. We'll, we'll put a link to it in our show notes so people yeah. can check it out. Just if I could, there, the, the, I had to laugh at one stage in that uh, dangerous ideas dialogue. I, I, she actually said, "Look," she looked at me and said, "Because Chris Kenny was on as well. There were two of us." She said, "Are oh, you men white?" pale and stale well no it, it, it became uh, that was a that was shocking only because uh it was an ad hominem attack you know it was an attack on not just you know well it, it was that plainly is is uh, racism uh, and 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 secondly it's 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 a personal attack and ages, ages, and, yes. and you, yeah. but you, you guys are big boys, and you, you could take it. But, but at the same time, uh, I was, ju- I just was just struck by, um, it just seemed that all this histrionics, this performative stuff of, of, of being outraged, because uh, you see this on on ABC's Q and A, or, or you know, uh, it, this behaviour just seemed like this particular person and people like her cannot stand to be in the same room as someone who holds any of your ideas or talk to you or so much to the point that they cannot sit still like it's impossible to sit still and not not be be exploding inside so i just thought that was um did you did you notice this at the time or, or at all i did notice it but you know it, it's water off a duck's back i mean you like to believe people are mature enough and balanced enough and I've, I've, as I said, I've got this old-fashioned idea that you follow the argument and and one reason why apparently I'm a lifelong learner, whatever that means, but, you know, a lot of my friends, I'm the same. We love reading, we love argument, we love debate, we love keeping up with affair, current affairs. And It doesn't trouble me, but it does trouble me. And I'm talking to my wife, Julia, about this, and she's happy to be my wife. Uh, I was talking to Julia about we've now reached a stage and people have written about this in America where everyone is an expert. Everyone 
has the knowledge to say whatever they want or believe whatever they want. So even if they're bereft, even if they know nothing, we've now reached a stage where people are so validated and so emotional that for them it doesn't really matter what the argument is in terms of being rational or logical or, or you know, based on an empirical uh, point of view. It's simply enough that they believe it. Uh, you know, it staggers me. and it, it is child abuse. There's a group called School for Climate, Change for Climate, that organised the strikes last year on Fridays uh, for students to attend uh, about man-made global warming. And they showed, you know, two 12-, 13-year-old girls crying, literally crying. Mm. And one of them said to the other one, I'll never be able to have children. I'll never be able to have, have a family. And the girlfriend said, I know, the world's going to end in, 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 in 20 years. Now, mm. on what basis do they make that judgment? And, and that's where I get upset as an educator because we have a primary responsibility as educators and as parents not to inflict that kind of trauma on our children or young people. Give them the ability to think and to weigh and to judge. And if they come to the opposite conclusion, no problem. But at least don't indoctrinate and use fear, fear, to, to scare them into believing what you want. Mm. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it is, it, it's shocking, isn't it? But, Kevin, w- would the left be as successful if they had to succinctly put their case forward, like, you know, like, like one-sentence explanations with, with no fancy words, you know, like, uh, for instance, you know, we're, we're not teaching Hamlet because we believe the current discrimination, uh, current discrimination is an answer to past discrimination, or, you know, if you are an immigrant from Macedonia who could not speak the language when you you arrive here, you're still white and therefore uh, you have benefited from your white privilege so you'll not be getting this job. Or um, our company believes that skin colour or sexual orientation is more important than character. So um, the question is, you know, if, if this is what they believe, why do they not state this clearly and, and put it in, you know, front of centre to us, uh, you know, in the school newsletter or at the Tuesday budget meeting? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Some institutes and some organisations and corporate bodies do simplify it in a sense that if you look at their gender or diversity guidelines, it's quite specific as to what they say. Uh, I mean, a good example only happened last week. The, the National Gallery, I think it was, the Australian National Gallery, said from now on it's recommending that all their acquisitions, any work of art, it has to be 40% male creators, 40% female creators, and 20% LGBTQI+. Now, that's been in the paper. It's been on TV and radio. And that, in a sense, is putting it in your face. It's quite direct. It's saying it's going to be 40, 40, 20. And a lot of people, when you hear, they, they, they listen and, and read that, they think, well, that's, that's rubbish. Whatever happened to merit or ability, you know, it's like, uh, as you know, a year or two ago in America, they said that any new productions in Hollywood have to have a a diversity uh, of of colour, of race, of gender, 
And again, people started to think, well, hold on. If, if you're doing like a particular film, you know. That's, Dunkirk, for instance. Or, you know, one of the old films I love, uh, Spencer Tracy in Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. It's an old man on a boat, you know what I mean? Mm. You can't get much gender diversity there yeah. or, or race or colour or whatever. But also, why only 20% though, Kevin? You know what I mean? Like, what, it, it, that, But your argument of merit meritocracy is, is I, I obviously agree with that, but let's just say that, you know, give them uh, the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll start putting quotas. Why only twenty percent? Who isn't? Is this not completely arbitrary? What if I'm in that twenty-first percent or or nine, whatever? I'm just I'm just outside the cutoff, but I'm still gay or something. I'd be really upset that my artwork wasn't in the NGV. I mean, I totally agree with you, but that's kind of the the stupidity of it, but also the danger of it, because what they're doing is reducing something that often can't be quantified or measured, but they're actually overlaying it. With, with a woke quota, I mean, well, Kevin, why why can't they why can't they do a blind test? You know, they they do this for symphony orchestras. If you if you're a violin player and there's a spot coming up at MSO, you actually have to audition behind a screen and you're assigned a number. No one knows your gender, no one knows your name, no one knows what you look like. It's only based on on uh, what you sound like, and that seems like a, a great way to go. But I have read recently that. Uh, some orchestras and some people, some commentators in the US, are saying that because that actually results in 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 a, a you know a not uh, equally proportioned amount of people of color and 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 things like that, so that they're actually saying that that's actually racist. Somehow they're making that argument, but don't you think that's a better way to go? I mean, you could look at the artwork and go, you know, do we you know do we like it? Do we think it's you know valid to be in here? And then whoever made it made it. You know, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean. I used to mark or set and mark the year 12 English exam. And so back in the day, we may have had 30 or 40,000 students. And this is the end of year exam, three hours, you know. There was only ever a number on the paper. So uh, over two or three weeks, the different markers, examiners may have read 1,000 essays or 2,000 essays. We had no idea the gender, the race, class, what school, government, Catholic, independent. All we had was a number. So you could argue that was blind and that was equitable and fair, and I think it still is. But I have, and this is where the sociology of education comes in, that was very influential during the 70s and 80s out of America and, and, and England. The argument is that by their very nature, competitive academic examinations reinforce structural racism, classism, bias, because the whole of Western society and the whole of the education system is inherently structured to advantaged, privileged, white, middle and upper class students. And it's always working class, migrant, non-English speaking kids, who don't do as well, except for Asian kids <laughs> who it got to a stage, as you might know, in America where the universities like, you know, the, the Ivy League universities said we'll have positive discrimination based on, on race except for Asian kids <laughs> because they'll always, they were, they were topping it all. Okay. So you couldn't, 
It was kind of weird. Yeah. That was a contradiction. Yeah. So, uh, you know, since we're talking about education, you were involved in reviewing the national cur- curriculum in 2014. What, what were your findings? Yeah, that took over a year and it was a great opportunity uh, to, to look at, I mean, a couple of things here. I looked at what's called the intended curriculum, i.e. the framework, the syllabus, what's actually published. And, and what is published at the federal or state territory level doesn't always get taught in the classroom. You've got the intended curriculum, the official curriculum, then you've got what actually happens in the classroom around, you know, thousands of schools, which can be different. And then you've got what the kids actually learn, which is different again. But when you look at the published curriculum, my worry, and it only got far, it was far worse last year when they came out with an updated version, is that it's very woke, very politically correct. There are three cross-curricular priorities, Asia, sustainability, and Indigenous. So all the different subjects from prep to year 10 have to be informed, where possible, by these perspectives. And so in, in, in history, for example, at 7 to 10, there are literally hundreds of references to Indigenous culture, spirituality, uh, whatever. There are only four to Christianity. There really are none to liberalism or the Westminster system or our, you know, things like habeas corpus or the separation of powers. There's very little about Western political legal systems or our culture. And at the time we argued in 2014, there had to be a greater focus on Western culture. And that never happened. And it's only got worse since. But when you look at the history curriculum, but even now in mathematics and science, in mathematics, the kids, students are told, they have to study Indigenous algebra. And I didn't know there was Indigenous algebra. I thought it went back to Pythagoras and the Greeks and that it was kind of Byzantium before then and India, you know, that, that our that algebra, geometry, it, it would never happened with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But there's a push now to what they call post-colonial theory, and I'm sort of segueing to use that horrible word, but there are universities in England now, and one of them is Sheffield, Sheffield, where they're saying when you study biology or science, you cannot study European science, as in the Enlightenment science, because that was complicit in imperialism, in racism, in white supremacy, in in destroying Indigenous cultures. So even things like mathematics and science, because of this woke ideology, now sort of badged, rebadged as post-colonial theory or critical race theory, it's got to that stage. So you can't say, for example, planes stay in the sky or bridges don't collapse because of Western science and mathematics. Couldn't you say, to get out of this, couldn't you say, I want to study the science that created the vaccines and the boosters that you desperately want me to want everyone to have? And they'd be like, sure, come on in, just do it. Let's do it. And by the way, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just saying, <laughs> saying that, like, you know, you could say clearly, you know, you could use some of these examples. Yeah, I, I won't go there. 
No, don't do <laughs> I it. I won't go there. Don't do it. I mean, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard some students, tertiary, you know, apparently educated, argue that you know, uh, get away from Western medicine, Western science. It, it's all evil. It's all bad. It's all big pharma. It, it's all Bill Gates and big pharma. And and if you, uh, you know, if you're really serious, get back to the kind of Zen Buddhist herbal cosmic karma, a bit of Reiki. Yeah. You know. What have the Romans ever done for us? I say. <laughs> so uh, perhaps we can talk about the now. I, I was reading your particular essay uh, in in Cancel Culture, the book, and. I came across uh, the Australian Education Union, who, whom I didn't wasn't really across until until now. It basically it's the body that represents teachers across Australia, or, or at least on the government East. schools. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Government schools, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I checked out their website. They're very concerned with racism, uh, climate change, and generally behaving as if women still don't have voting rights. Um, uh, there wasn't much in there about achieving excellence or creating good citizens for children. I'm not. I didn't see much of that, but whatever. Uh, so, so why are there the, the, these radical views um, of the, uh, not exposed more, um, or at least put front of shop? Because there's no way an average Aussie parent from Broadmeadows or anywhere. Uh, would be down with this niche stuff. I mean, th- this isn't um, Hawke and Keating Labor views. This is extremism, isn't it? It is. And, uh, I mean, I was a member of the education union back in the day. And uh, when you look at, and I've been writing about this for 30, 40 years, when you look at their policies, in Victoria they were run by, by, by Trots, by Trotsky, you know, Trotskyites. They were kind of classical Marxists. And they didn't hide that. I mean, I've got no problem with the old-style Marxism. Uh, If people say, let's bring on the people's revolution, I say, well, good luck with that. You know, it it didn't quite work in Cambodia and Year Zero or Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh or Stalin or Lenin or, you know, go to Cuba, you know, go to North Korea, live there for a month, see how it goes. So you can kind of argue the point as to whether it's ever worked. I don't believe it has. But... The teacher union has always been very radical. And part of the problem is that a lot of the students I went through university with in the late 60s, early 70s, it was a cultural revolution. People don't understand how significant it was. You know, the Sorbonne, the student rights, Woodstock moratoriums, Jim Cairns, anti-Vietnam, uh, make love, not war. We took that literally back in the day. You know, uh, even the music, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joan Baez, I mean, it was a heady time to be alive. Uh, Wordsworth, the poet, talks about the French Revolution. Uh, glorious was, was it to be alive, but to be young was, was very heaven. And to be at university during the 60s and 70s, it was brilliant. Uh, we, we rejected authority. You know, there was a birth control pill. There was uh, feminism, Germaine Greer. Uh, it was a time of liberation. Uh, we stormed the admin, or some of us did. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> it was a great time <laughs> to be alive. Uh, a lot of people were on the hippie trail uh, to Europe through Afghanistan and Iran, Iraq. I mean, hashish, uh, LSD, mescalanto. You know, somebody said, if you remember the 70s, you were never there. 
because <laughs> it was a pretty heady time. You're a stiff, if you remember. A lot of those people are my age and have gone through university, graduated, got a career, got a job, gone into politics, gone in the media, got into the public service, gone into the teaching unions. During the sort of 80s, 90s, you know, more recently, a lot of these radicalised young people got into positions of authority, positions of control, and that's why it became so influential. Now, whether it's The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, whether it's the ABC, whether in Victoria it's the public service, you know, whether it's the teacher union, a lot of that generation that was radicalised then assumed positions of authority and power. And that's part of the reason uh, during the 80s and 90s we went the way we did. Now, it's going to be interesting when a lot of these people retire, who replaces them? in terms of millennials and, you know, younger people, as to whether they continue. The problem is it's all now become institutionalised. So it's very rare to get an opposing voice or a, or a counter-argument. If you do an undergraduate degree in journalism, for example, or sociology or politics, the reality is in England, America and Australia, the research shows up to 70, 80% of the academics are centre-left. So they're the ones teaching the young people. Well, centre, centre-left if you're lucky. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, be, you know what I mean. More, yeah, 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 probably even more left. Like centre-left, the they'd be like, oh, you know, like Greenpeace and that, but, but you know, the government keeping, like, I like the banks being deregulated, that's all right. Like, like that, that sort of person is probably not that prevalent now, I would think. You could be right. I mean, I'm a bit older. Uh, well, I went back to university a couple of years ago, Kevin. I, I, went, I, I, I studied literature just a couple of years ago, so I have end-user experience. It's a nightmare. I went there with the foolish idea thinking that, that we would be learning about the great books, and it, would, it was not that. It was, all, it was, it was your nightmare too. We were, it was graphic novels and you know, TV commercials and studying all that stuff, and then it was, there was very little talk of, of, of aesthetics or, or truth and beauty. It was, it was all just focused on, and, and the postmodern, I read postmodernism really um in depth for the first time jameson and all that stuff absolute nonsense absolute nonsense so it was a terrifying experience it is uh, the funny thing is i was in paris like 30 years ago speaking to people who i met who were well-educated academics and others that whole postmodernism deconstruction it, it took on in, in france for maybe eight or ten years and then they got rid of it because it didn't make any sense but what happened in, in England, America and Australia, we kind of, they grabbed it and held on to it because right. they didn't know anything else. But there's a, there's a I mean, I, when I did the postgrad, I tried to read Derrida and Roland Barthes and these people. And some of it goes back to language, uh, you know, they're signifiers. They ha- language has no meaning, agreed meaning. There is no objective or agreed meaning to what a word is because they're simply signifiers, and that goes back, I think, to Saucere. But, you know, uh, Roland Barthes in particular argued that you, you can't, <clears throat> he argued, you can't tell me what I think or what you believe because we use language, and language is a social construct imposed by the hegemony of the ruling elites. 
And so it's just a power trip on your part to kind of force it on me. He was being interviewed once and the interviewer said to him, well, is this what you mean? Blah, 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 blah. And Roland said, no, that's not what I mean. I meant this. And the interviewer said, well, hold on. You can't tell me what you mean because I'm a person and I construct my own meaning and I'm free, I'm liberated to think whatever you think, I think that you think. And so don't tell me I'm wrong. Monty Python stuff. There's an inherent contradiction because if language has no meaning, if, if, if knowledge is not inherently worthwhile, if knowledge is simply a construct, and this is the danger, and I wrote about it, uh, you know, when I did the doctorate, if it's all construct, on what basis do you get agreement? It's either epistemological suicide, there is no meaning, or else it's violence, and that's the danger that all spoke about. And you only have to look at Stalin and Lenin and Mao Zedong, you know, prime examples, where if there is no rationality and reason, if there is no moral and spiritual sense of value, it's reduced to power relationships. And as Mao said, you know, power comes from the barrel of a gun. And, and, and that's the danger. That is the danger. Uh, because if young kids don't have a moral compass, if they're not grounded in a moral and aesthetic view, what do they draw on if they're going to make decisions about life? Well, Kevin, we're, we're a little bit mindful of the time here and we, we, we'd love to maybe pivot towards Western civilization if we could for a little bit here. Uh, why should we care about Western civilization? Uh, what's the big deal? Sell it to me. Uh, well, I, I, I'll give you a ticket to go and live in North Korea for a month. What are they offering? Uh, totalitarian <laughs> regime, dictatorship, poverty, Mind control, uh, imprisonment. I, I hear the swan meat is quite good. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> there's been a new directive from on high that if you're feeling a bit hungry, swan meat is quite good. Go out and get yourself some swan. I'll go for it. Uh, but, I mean, the simple solution is if you want freedom, and I'm not saying Australia is perfect or America, there is inequality. And, uh, you know, the argument put by uh, an American academic many years ago, is that you can say Western culture is misogynist, unjust, heteronormative, structurally racist. You can say all of that. And there was a time when it was. I mean, there was a time when women didn't get the vote. There was a time when homosexuality was a criminal offence people were put in jail. But what the academic says is that over time we've evolved and so we have within our own culture, our own Western culture, the ability to right wrongs, to work towards greater equity and social justice and freedom of speech and freedom of movement. And there's a very good book by Larry Seedentrop, The Origins uh, of Liberty, and he traces it back to the New Testament. And the, the, the words of Jesus, obviously, that it was a strong belief that if we're all made in God's image, then we have the inherent right to freedom and protection and that 
nobody has the right to subjugate or oppress us because we have that inherent right. Now, you can also go back to the Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, European as well, the idea of natural law, of, you know, whether it's Mill on liberty, the idea of uh, within a, a Westminster parliamentary democracy, there is popular sovereignty, there is separation of powers, there is the right to vote, equal representation. I mean, all of these things evolved over hundreds of years and gradually improved. You only have to get a ticket, go to, you know, North Korea, go to China, go to uh, even Russia, see how you go in if, you, if you're in Moscow and you demonstrate against the war in Ukraine, see how long it is before you get beaten, beaten up and put in jail. So there is much that we should celebrate and acknowledge. And there's an American expression about uh, eternal vigilance, that freedom requires eternal vigilance. And that's one thing we argue in the book, The Culture of Freedom, that, or that I argued in The Culture of Freedom, and more recently in cancel culture, is that unless it's like the air we breathe, once we've lost it, it's too late. We take it for granted. And not only are we taking it for granted in places like Australia, but young people are being taught that it's somehow wrong, negative, destructive. There was the independent study, CIS in Sydney, did a survey a couple of years ago I think it was 70% of young people thought socialism was okay and couldn't see why democracy was any better. So we're actually educating generations of young people who have no strong sense of what it is we should be protecting. Well, I don't understand the strategy of, of, of what we call the left today, uh, Kevin. The extremists are on that side are going to say what they always say, okay? They're going to say math's racist, math is racist, uh, um, Shakespeare's wife wrote all his plays, you know, whatever. Uh, now, I have a theory that the moderate left could take so much ground politically and socially if they offered a story that was hopeful and balanced. So if they embraced, like, incredible literature, which we've talked about, uh, on aesthetic grounds, you just say, you can just say, well... Um, Julia, Romeo and Juliet is better than the Hunger Games on every level. So that's settled. Okay. And they could say, uh, they could teach um, history, uh, the horrors and triumphs of our history that you've just, you've just talked about, uh, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, on both, bo both things. If the, if the triumphs are uncomfortable, we need to talk about that, but also the horrors. And if they defended rigor and robust debate, um, they could, you know, they could still keep their fa favorite stuff like recycling and whatever. But, but, but what, what, why are they being so spineless with the fringe elements of their Party. You would have to ask them that. <laughs> ah, well, it's you know you've dealt with these people. You, you must have spoken spoken to these kinds of people with your with your work with the, with the curriculum. Surely there are good people. Uh, I mean, when I was writing many years ago, I wrote an article about cultural literacy. Uh, you know, to be literate, to be knowledgeable, there are things we need to know and we take for granted. I mean, if I talk about Pandora's box or Achilles' heel. Uh, or, you know, he met his Waterloo or whatever it might be. There are certain sayings or expressions. Uh, and uh, Carr, he was the Labor Premier of New South Wales. He actually wrote me a letter saying, Kevin, you're 100% right. As a Labor Premier, that's what I want. 
And it's interesting that Antonioni Gramsci, the Italian Marxist who wrote the prison notebooks during the 30s and 40s, he was an old-style Marxist who believed that if the workers and the peasants were going to win the war, the revolution, they had to be educated. So he argued, Gramsci, that, that everyone had to learn about Western culture, about the Greeks, about the Enlightenment. So there is an element within the old-style left, the old labour movement, which is very much about, as you've just said, that you read Shakespeare, you read history, you celebrate and acknowledge what we've achieved while also pointing out the flaws and the sins of the past. But unfortunately, from what I can see, that element in the Labor Party is not as strong as it once was. And I'll also have a go at the Liberal Party because within the Liberal Party, federally say, it's very rare now to get Liberal members of Parliament who would understand this debate and who would be aware of what needs to be done. John Howard did, Tony Abbott did, Brendan Nelson did when he was Education Minister. But if you look at the Conservative centre-right in the Liberal Party, they're being kicked out of Parliament, they're not being pre-selected, and that's the danger as well, that both parties no longer argue the case uh, and that's a great shame. Well, if you, if you want to prevail in the Liberal Party, it seems like, yeah, you stay away from these cultural topics, you stay away from history, you stay away from all of that, to stick to the economy and, you know, to stay to those those things you can, you can handle. Uh, and it's a real shame. I feel like you've just said it, that we would be a lot... Um, uh, we would be a lot richer in our debates and Q&A would be a much better show uh, and not the nightmare it is uh, if we had those, the great minds on both sides, the, 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 you know, like say what you like about the politics of, of whoever we're talking about. But, you know, Paul Keating is is beautifully read and so is Bob Carr and written a book about it. And so is, you know, I mean, on both sides, we have we have people who've shown a form, but but it feels like we are there's a dearth at the moment. It is. And, uh, you know, if you travel or if you read overseas media, especially out of New York and London, we don't have the same intellectual grunt in Australia in terms of the informed critical debate. And, and, and that's an issue which is a great worry, compounded by the impact of social networking and the fact that a lot of young people couldn't read a novel of 200 pages uh, because I would find that they're so used to computer screens and, you know, texting and three-word sentences. Mm. That's the issue as well. And, and what's happened is politics has been dumbed down so that we no longer have that rigour, that academic rigour. People are so afraid to speak out these days, Kevin. Do you think we need to find our moral courage? Definitely people need to speak out and, and argue the case. Uh, but as I said before, it is difficult uh, because you can lose your job. You can be denied promotion. Uh, people won't publish you. Uh, and you can lose friends, frankly. So it is difficult, but I'm optimistic. I mean, there's Campion College in Sydney, which is a liberal arts college, which is doing great work and getting more enrolments, and they're building more at the moment because they're becoming more popular. There are, you know, the... Institute of Public Affairs, IPA in Melbourne, the CIS in Sydney. There's the Mankell 
Institute in Perth, the Dawson Centre in Tasmania. If you look around and you're a young person and, and you start to think, well, I want to hear a diversity of arguments, I want to hear the other side of the debate, then it is possible now people are starting to light small fires mm. and to, as you do, use the social networking platform to actually get discussion and debate. John Anderson, who was the National Party, uh, he was Deputy Prime Minister, mm. his YouTube uh, conversations, they can get hits of 20, 30,000. Yes. Well, Victor Davis Hanson uh, appeared on his show. That has millions of views. Yeah. Millions. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. Now, that kind of thing is, I'm optimistic uh, that, 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 that people are lighting small fires and, and getting a bit of balance here. And I still have a, even though I, you know, I'm proven wrong a lot, I still have an understanding or a sense that young people want to know the truth. They want to work out what's right and wrong. And life can throw difficulties, challenges, you know, whether it's somebody getting crook, somebody getting, you know, dying, somebody being upset and depressed. People start to think, well, I'm not going to solve this through being woke <laughs> mm. and being politically correct. I actually need something a bit more substantial. Yeah, well, it's almost become religion, isn't there? I mean, there's theories out there that wokeness or whatever you want to label it uh, is a kind of religion uh, that's that's born from the god-shaped hole that that we've made for ourselves. Uh, it kind of explains the the you know the the rituals and 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 the zeal of some of its adherents. Uh, if you know if wokeness is a religion, then why are its followers so seemingly miserable? Good question. <laughs> Too much self-flagellation, I think. <laughs> But it's interesting on that point, uh, Antonio Di Gramsci, who I mentioned, he actually talked about uh, back in the day, Marxism would be the religion, the religion to replace Christianity. Mm. And there's a great Italian academic, Augusto Del Noce, which everyone should read. Uh, and I've written a few essays about him. And he traces it all back to the Frankfurt School and what was happening also during the 60s and 70s. But part of neo-Marxism arising out of Marxism, it is an ideology very much directed at uh, a religious sort of replace, a religion that replaces Christianity. So you have your disciples, whether it's Lenin, whether it's uh, Che Guevara, whether it's Ho Chi Minh, you have your disciples. You have your Bible, you know, whether it's uh, Das Kapital, whatever it might be more recently. You, you, you have your martyrs, and it's kind of like a fervent religion. And this is the problem because unlike Christianity that actually is based on free will, and Del Noche makes this point, and I totally agree, as a Catholic I was always taught as a young boy you have free will. There is God's word, but you choose. There is good and evil. There is right and wrong. God wants you to choose good, but it's your choice. The whole fundamental difference between Western culture of Christianity in particular and neo-Marxism and woke ideology is that, and this gets back to 1984 and all, one promotes 
people being indoctrinated. Uh, Camille Parlier makes the point uh, where tolerance is intolerance. So you tolerate things, but in fact, you're being intolerant. You're demeaning people, you're attacking people, you're vilifying people. But wokeness is all about conformity, all about mind control, all about groupthink. Whereas Western tradition, based on empiricism, enlightenment, and Christianity, is based on freedom of free will, dialogue, and debate. And that's the fundamental difference. And that's why I always believe neo-Marxism or communism or wokeness will not work. Mm. What what seems to be missing in wokeness, though, is there's no there's no avenue for redemption. There's no forgiveness in it, which, which is a key part of Christianity that that you don't see in, in and, neo-Marxism. Yeah, you're dead right, and and Solzhenitsyn makes that point. You know, when he writes about the gulags and communism. Uh, he makes that very point. Uh, and, 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 yeah, it's a great argument and debate to have because Del Noche makes the point too, and I've written about it, that for all its faults, Christianity does actually, it's based on the premise that there is good and evil, that to be human is to be prone to sin, that we can be capable of the greatest atrocities and bar- barbarism, and we see that in history. We see it now in the Ukraine with what Putin's doing. But at the same time, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is the ability to strive to make a better world and to treat people as they should be, as, you know, as we're all made in God's image. You don't have to be a a full-on Christian to believe that. You, You just have to understand that Western culture, in terms of, you know, liberty, the enlightenment, going back to Aristotle, to Plato, to, so- to, to, all, to all of those early Greeks. It comes from them as well. I don't think we can top the, that, me- that metaphysical ending. I think we should just naturally let that, that uh, go. But thank you so much for, for this discussion, Kevin. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. And don't forget my webpage, kevindonnelly.com.au. And all the books are right there. Okay, so you, so you can get the books from your from your website. Yeah, excellent, great stuff. Thanks, Kevin. Totally enjoyed it. Okay, thanks very much.